Church, do you realise this morning that aside from the supreme treasure of God himself and the Lord Jesus Christ, we hold in our hands the greatest treasure in all the world? Let that sink in for just a moment. In my hands is the scripture. And if you have a copy of that, uh, in your own language that you are able to read, study, meditate upon, you have the greatest treasure, save God only, in all the world. We're going to this morning, Lord willing, as I said earlier, we're going to look at the matter of the authority and the sufficiency of the Scripture. The authority and the sufficiency of the Scripture. I'd like you to turn with me, if you would, please, to 2 Timothy and chapter 3, which is uh, the place we read before. 2 Timothy chapter 3. And we're going to jump right in in verse 16. We've had some context read to us already. And it is a very, very familiar portion of Scripture. In fact, I would suggest most of us may even have some of this, at least, in our minds, learned off by heart. But in 2 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 16, Paul gives us an outstanding verse as he writes to Timothy. This is what he says in verse 16 of chapter 3. All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. And he concludes that thought, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Breathed out by God. Very interesting word in the original language. It is just one word, breathed out by God. All of those words in the English just form one Greek word, and it is a unique word, theonoustos. And I say it only for this reason, theo or theos meaning God, noustos, where we get the idea of wind, pneuma, spirit. It's breathed out by God. Literally, it is filled with the breath of God, a little bit like a kite or a sail is filled with the wind. This is filled, the scripture, with the breath of God. When we talk about authority, we need to understand something, and I want to just give a little bit of introduction here before we launch right into where we're going. When we say that the scripture is authoritative, we do not mean that it has its own authority inerrant in it. As in the book over there has its own authority. That's not what we mean. By the authority of God's word, we mean that it is God's divine revelation and he put his authority on it and in it and through it and by it because it's his. That authority of the scriptures is because the author has authority. I just want to quickly show you something in Romans chapter 13. 
just to help you understand this matter of authority before we get very, very practical about what we're looking at. Romans chapter 13 and verse 1. Most of us know this passage for its authoritative discussion regarding rulers and principalities and so forth in this world. But look at what verse 1 says. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God. And those that exist have been instituted by God. Now, Paul goes on to tell us about the government and so forth. But that verse stands alone. All authority, anything that is authoritative, gets its authority from God. So we see that obviously the government are given authority, uh, the the leadership of a church given authority, uh, so on. Authority comes from God. This book that we have, the scriptures, is given by God and therefore is authoritative in its very nature because of its divine author. I believe we know that. I don't think I've told you anything new this morning, but that forms the basis of all that we're going to look at here this morning. I'm going to do something a little bit different. I don't tend to do this too often, but most of what we're going to look at is going to be on the PowerPoint uh, as I show you a few things, and I hope it'll be helpful to see it visually. You can take your notes as you see fit. It's going to be very simple this morning, but I hope profound in its application for us. This is an illustration that I designed some time ago because this illustration is what we get from what we call the Roman Catholic Church versus the Protestant movement. So back in the 13, 14, 15, 1600s, you would be aware that we have the Reformation. And by the Reformation, we mean that there were those Protestants who were not prepared to bow down to the papacy and the ecclesiastical church at the time. They didn't believe that they had power, but that power was in Jesus Christ alone. And so... I have put together what I believe to be hopefully a helpful illustration. One day we're going to look at this in its entirety. But here is what it says. If you can't see that, down the bottom we have what's called sola scriptura. Now these are all Latin words. I don't put them up there to sound clever. This is what was truly framed by them. And the sola means something alone. So when we have sola scriptura, we speak of scripture alone. And what the reformers, the Protestants, meant by that was that the Scripture was our final and absolute authority for all matters pertaining to life and godliness and the spiritual realm. So I set that here in this illustration as the foundation. Last week we had our Vision Sunday and I told you that we would be beginning on this, uh, this path of understanding what it is about the church and how it all operates. This is foundational. Scripture alone. If we do not believe that scripture alone is our source of divine revelation, then we will go a different direction. You cannot ever be saved by looking at creation. Okay, we talk about special revelation and general revelation. Creation around us speaks of God, does it not? It does. But nobody will ever look to the mountain and say, I need to be saved by Jesus Christ. The mountain doesn't tell you that. Divine, special revelation, which is scripture, tells you that. And we need to have firmly understood in our own minds as believers that we believe in scripture alone 
as the final authority as it relates to the spiritual realm. Very important. On top of that, I created three pillars, which I didn't create, but I put them together as an illustration. And we look from the left to the right. Sola gratia, sola fide, sola Christo. This is what they believed was necessary for salvation. What we say here is it's by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. That is the message of the gospel. It's by grace alone. God's grace, His bestowed favor upon you. You cannot earn it. There goes the Roman Catholic Church. It's through faith alone, the faith that God gives to you to believe in the truth of the gospel. That comes from Him. Faith alone. And it's in Christ alone. It's not in the sacraments. It's not in Mary. It's not in any other practices of the church. It is by grace, through faith, in Christ alone. They form the three pillars of salvation, which is firmly fixed upon Scripture alone. And then finally, of course, the roof, which has an arrow pointing upwards, is sola deo gloria, to the glory of God alone. The whole process is about God's glory. The scripture is about God's glory. The grace is about God's glory. The faith is about God's glory. Christ is about God's glory. It's a good illustration because that illustration shows us the summary, if you like, of our faith. Now, obviously, there's much, much, much more by way of doctrine in all of that. But we need to understand this. And we are looking today at this foundational aspect, Scripture alone, the Word of God, the revealed divine revelation for us. Now, before I enter into some thoughts here for us, and we're going to be, I'm going to try and be brief through some of these things, but there's some presuppositions. What I mean by that is there's some things that I'm expecting you to already believe about the Bible. If you don't, come and see me afterwards. Let me show you other things about that. Here's some presuppositions. The 39 books of the Old Testament and the 27 books of the New Testament that we have are the completed canon of Scripture. So what I'm saying is what I hold in my hand here is the completed canon of Scripture. Now, we need to be careful, minus the little maps and atlases at the back. That wasn't part of divine revelation. Uh, cross-references and so forth. But you know what I mean. We're talking Genesis through Revelation. We don't believe in the Apocrypha as uh, we do in uh, the Catholic churches and other things that people add to it. Completed in our hands. So that's presupposition number one. I expect you to know that. If you don't, come talk to me about it. be glad to talk to you about it. We have the preserved Scriptures and not the actual God-breathed, inspired manuscripts. Let me explain what I mean by that because there is so much confusion. If any of you are on Facebook and follow anything that has happened recently in my life, I bought a new Bible the other day. This is my brand new goatskin Bible that I just love to bits. And I put a photo up on Facebook about it and I was just excited about it. And, and I think, I don't know how many comments there are now, but on Facebook there are uh, literally hundreds of comments about why this Bible is not God's Word and all sorts of stuff. People going all haywire and all sorts of issues. Let me just state categorically for you to understand something. Nobody today possesses the original manuscripts breathed out by God, given to Paul or Peter or John, that form the original form of the Scriptures. By the way, if you did, you couldn't read it. That wouldn't be much help to you, unless you're a Greek, Aramaic and Hebrew scholar. We don't have that, but what we do have is the promise that God gave to us in the Scriptures that He will preserve His Word. 
It's been translated into hundreds of languages, but we have the preserved Word of God. Be careful when you hear people say, I am holding in my hand the inspired Word of God. Well, if you are, you're worth a lot of money for one thing, because there was only one set of manuscripts that were inspired, the original ones, and they don't exist. We have translations, transmissions of that text in our English language today. And we need to understand these are not the God-breathed inspired manuscripts, but it is the preserved Word of God. Can I say categorically I have the Word of God? Oh, yes. This is God's Word. This is God's preserved Word for us today. And it's not just in the ESV, may I add. It's not about the translation. We could go on, but I'm not going to. We're using translations from the Hebrew, Greek and Aramaic, which are not without error. Now, I know that uh, as I say this and it's being recorded, some people may listen to this message and say, are you saying you have a Bible with some errors in it? Yes, I am. I'm saying that there are grammatical faults in my translation. There are places where spelling is incorrect. There are lots of things like that. that but what I'm saying is that God's word is preserved. Just because the translation may have a few errors in it does not mean that God's word is in any way taken away from what it really is. Now, something we can talk about another date, but that's important to note. We're dealing with a translation. A couple other presuppositions here. The revelation of God is primarily understood through the pages of Scripture and it is the only form of secret revelation or private revelation, I should, uh, special revelation rather, for this age. We have here the final authority from God, His Word, for us today. This is it. Uh, if we go out of those lines, we go into all sorts of weird and wacky things and it becomes very subjective. Well, I heard God tell me this. I heard God tell me that. Well, if you cannot authenticate that in the scripture, I'm not prepared to believe it because this is God's final authority for all matters pertaining to life, doctrine, godliness, etc. Presupposition number four. Number five, I said this before, chapter breaks, cross-references, notes, lexical aids, etc. They're not part of the canon of scripture. So when you look down here and, and you see uh, this was cited in another place or there's a mistake, in, that's not God's word. That's just some men putting some things together to be helpful. We don't have chapter verses, we don't have chapters, we don't have breaks and all those things in the original. Okay, hopefully that all makes sense. If it doesn't, I'm available afterwards to talk to me about. Okay, presuppositions. Our main text that we're going to look at for a few moments this morning is all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. 2 Timothy 3.16 I just want to read this out to you. You might not be able to see it, but this I thought was just such a wonderful thing. Let me read it to you. The Bible contains the mind of God, the state of man, the way of salvation, the doom of sinners, and the happiness of believers. Its doctrines are holy. Its precepts are binding. Its histories are true. And its decisions are immutable. Read it to be wise. Believe it to be saved. Practice it to be holy. It contains light to direct you, food to support you, and comfort to cheer you. It is the traveller's map, the pilgrim's staff, the pilot's compass, the soldier's sword, and the Christian's charter. Here too, heaven is open and the gates of hell disclosed. Christ is its grand subject, our good its design, and the glory of God its end. It should fill the memory, it should rule the heart, it should guide the feet. Read it slowly, 
frequently and prayerfully. It's a mine of wealth, a paradise of glory and a river of pleasure. It is given you here in this life, will be opened at the judgment and is established forever. It involves the highest responsibility, will reward the greatest labor and will condemn all who trifle with its sacred contents. What a summary. This is what we have on our laps. My goal this morning is to have us return to a supreme appreciation and a love for God's word. So here's point number one. The absolute authority of the scriptures. We only have two points this morning and about 35 subpoints. Just kidding. But we are going to look at two points with a number of subpoints. The absolute authority of the scriptures. The Bible says all scripture is breathed out by God. So we need to ask the question, well, if the scripture has authority, where? In what areas of my life does the scripture have authority? And we're not talking about a little bit of authority. We're talking about absolute. That's why I put the word absolute authority there. It is absolute in what it says. It's objective. It's not questioned. It's not something, well, I wonder if I should do this. It has absolute authority. Let's look at a few things here. Number one, most importantly, it has authority in the realm of salvation. I want to take the time to look up a few verses here. If you're still in 2 Timothy, you'll see there in 2 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 15, if you would follow along with me there. My new Bible pages are sticking, so it takes me longer to find my place, I'm sorry. 2 Timothy 3 and verse 15. I've got to read from verse 14. Paul says to Timothy, But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it, and how from childhood you've been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. Uh, in 1 Peter, if, you have, if you're quick enough with your Bible, follow along. If not, you can maybe take down the reference and look at them later. In 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 23, Peter, we had Paul, now we have Peter. Peter says, since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and abiding word of God. This book is authoritative in its message regarding salvation. It says you must be born again. It says unless you all repent, you will all likewise perish we read in Romans chapter 10 and verse number 18 again another familiar portion of scripture there excuse me verse 17 that should be I apologize so faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ the faith To believe comes from the reality that this book is authoritative in its message and tells you what it is you must believe. And the Lord Jesus, uh, the Bible tells us about the Lord Jesus in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. It says that he was crucified according to the scriptures. He was buried and raised according to the scriptures. It's authoritative. And with all the authority of the scriptures and all the authority of heaven, I need to say to you this morning, you must be born again. You must be. 
You must be. It's a command. You say, well, should I, just, uh, should I just obey that command and not put my heart into it? Not at all. But what will happen is that the Spirit of God will convict you of that and you will not be able to resist that because within you, you will say, oh, I know this is true. You've revealed to me the truth of this and I will believe it. And so I say as a preacher with the authority of heaven, believe the gospel. There are those in our midst today who have never trusted Christ. You know about him. You've heard about him. You've listened even to the preaching of God's word. You know what the word says about it. But you must place your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. In Christ alone. By grace alone. Through faith alone. And it will be life changing. The scriptures is authoritative as it relates to your sin problem and salvation. Secondly, I want you to note that the scripture is authoritative and it's seen in the life of Jesus Christ. We won't take the time to look up all of these, but if you'd go to Matthew chapter 22 with me. Matthew chapter 22 and verse 29. The Lord Jesus had an incredibly high view of scripture. Matthew 22 and verse 29. uh, The Sadducees are asking about the resurrection They're saying, well, in the resurrection, if this man's been married to this many people, which one will be his wife in the the new kingdom, so to speak? And this is the Lord Jesus' response in verse 29. Jesus answered them, you are wrong because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. You know what that tells me? The Lord Jesus had a very high view of scripture because all he said all the time, the scripture says... The scripture says the scripture must be fulfilled. You don't believe the scriptures. You say that uh, the scriptures are something you believe, but yet they are they which talk about me, he said. The Lord Jesus had an incredibly high view of scripture and its authority in his life as the revealed son of God. That ought to give us an indication of how important the scripture is in our life. If the perfect, sinless Son of God made the Scriptures of such high value in His own life, then how could we as believers for a moment denigrate that? How could we for a moment say, well, the Scriptures don't really matter when our Saviour had such a high view? There are some other verses for you to consider. We won't take the time right now to look them up. In salvation and in the life of Jesus Christ, also in the life of the Christian Let's turn to Deuteronomy. You say, well, hang on, Deuteronomy is Old Testament. It can't be dealing with the Christian, surely. Because that's the Old Testament. And you'd be right in saying that. But the Lord Jesus brings new life and light to this passage in the New Testament. But in Deuteronomy chapter 8 and verse 3, it's the Lord speaking to the children of Israel. And he says this, And he humbled you and let you hunger, or Moses speaking, I should say, and he fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you know that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. Now, I read the Old Testament passage. You know the New Testament one. The Lord Jesus there in the desert with the tempter. And he says the same thing. We do not live by the physical sustenance of bread, the staple of our lifestyle. We live by the word of God and every word of God. If you would, I'd like you just to turn to 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. By the end of the message, you'll know where every single book of the Bible is. Be able to turn there in an instant. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. 
I love this verse. And verse 13, Paul speaking to the church at Thessalonica, 1 Thessalonians 2.13, We also thank God constantly for this, that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God. You weren't under any delusions or illusions. You knew that what we were preaching to you was the word of God and it later formed the canon of divine scripture for us here. At John chapter 17, verse 17, we know this verse, we won't turn there. The Bible says uh, the Lord Jesus is praying to his heavenly father and he says, sanctify them through your truth. Your word is truth. Your word is truth. We're sanctified by the word of truth and that is part of what the authority of the scripture is in the life of the Christian. So put it another way, if you want to grow, if you want to change, if you want to be conformed to the image of Christ, if you want your mind renewed, if you want to see things the way the Lord Jesus does and the way God looks at things, there's one way to do that, through the pages and the lens of scripture. And so we see it's in salvation, in the life of Jesus Christ, in the life of the Christian, in the church, in the church. 1 Timothy chapter 4 and verse 2. I apologise, it's 1 Timothy chapter 4. <clears throat> My intention was to read this out. Chapter 4, beginning in verse 1. Now the Spirit <clears throat> expressly says that in later times some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teaching of demons through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared, who forbid marriage and require abstinence from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. Are we living in those days? People saying all sorts of weird and wacky things today, are they not? I mean, this was true in Paul's day, but how much more in the latter days? There are the weirdest things. You only have to do a quick internet search for just a moment to see some of the weird and wacky things that people in the name of Christianity are saying. Verse 4, for everything created by God is good. Nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving, for it is made holy by the word of God and prayer. If you put these things before the brothers, you'll be a good servant of Christ Jesus, being trained in the words of the faith and of the good doctrine that you have followed. Have nothing to do with irreverent silly myths. Rather, train yourself for godliness. For while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way, as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. For to this end we toil and strive, because we have our hopes set on the living God, who is the saviour of all people, especially of those who believe. Notice verse 11, please. Command and teach these things. Let no one despise you for your youth, but set the believers an example in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, in purity. We looked at that recently, didn't we? Do not neglect, excuse me, verse 13. Until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation, to teaching. And he goes on. It is very clear from this portion of scripture, which is a book designed for the church, that the scripture is authoritative in the church. This is our mandate. This is our handbook. This is where we go to seek the counsel that's necessary. Second Timothy, just a couple of pages over, <clears throat> chapter 4, verses 1 through 5. 
Again, Paul says to Timothy, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead by his appearing in his kingdom. Preach the word. Preach the word. Be ready in season, out of season, reprove, rebuke, exhort with complete patience and teaching. And he goes on to, we won't read the rest of that. In this church, in this local assembly, I trust that we are going to maintain and continue to hold up the scriptures as the final authority as it relates to the spiritual realm. Sola Scriptura. The moment that we deviate from that, we are going onto a path uh, where we read of verse 3, for the time is coming where people will not endure sound teaching. The moment we deviate from the portion, the passage, and the teaching of Scripture, we will enter into silly myths. We will enter into all heresies. And it is your responsibility, as it is mine, to make sure that we maintain Scripture alone. I just want to make a quick note on this. Some of you, I believe may have come from churches where there has been authority issues. What I mean by authority issues is uh, issues where leadership have assumed authority that is not their own. And I want to make it very clear that the only authority that any church leadership has is in the Word of God. I do not possess any authority whatsoever over your life as your individual decisions except when it comes to the scriptural truth whereby I'm able to say, friend, brother, sister, this is what the Bible says. You must obey it, not because the authority is inherent in me, but it's in the word. And your authority over one another is exactly the same. You go to your brother or your sister when there is a sin or there's a fault or there's a, there's a beam or a speck in their eye and you've checked yourself and you're seeking to help and develop others. You go to them with the scriptures and you say, my brother, my sister, I'm concerned about this aspect of your life because it doesn't line up with the portion of scripture. And you know what the Bible says? We do that in love. Ephesians. That's crucial. We do it in love. But we do it. And one of the things that we need to develop in as a church is looking out so much so for our brothers and sisters that we would lovingly rebuke and encourage one another in the word. God designed it that way for his church. That's how we do it. And so this is not an exercise in help, helping you see how much authority the leadership has in this church at all. This is just simply to say the authority is in God's word and only there. Only there. In the church, did you know that the Bible has authority in your marriage? In Ephesians chapter 5, beginning in verse 22. Wives, submit yourselves to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its saviour. Let me pause and say, is this culturally acceptable? Is this what the world wants us to do? Does the world want to help <clears throat> mature women in the Lord understand that their responsibility is to submit to their husbands? Uh, when I read about the feminist movement, when I read about all that is going on in the world, we are the antithesis of that. Now, we can go to an extreme too, and that's not the point. But you need to understand, this is wholly opposed to the world. What we're called to here, ladies, what you're called to is totally opposed to the world. Men, what we are called to is also opposed to the world. Verse 24, now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their, own, to their husbands. Verse 25, husbands, 
love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. Verse 28, in the same way, husbands should love their wives. You know what the Bible says here? Husbands, our responsibility is to wash our wives in the word. That's what the Bible says. Christ washes his church in the word, and husbands, we are to wash our wives in the word. The, the, the Bible has authority in our marriages. It tells us how we're supposed to do it. We're not left to our own devices. The scripture is the final authority as it relates to our marriage. We need to understand that. More on that at another time. In child rearing, I think it's very interesting that the Bible speaks to this. I have no authority or experience in this. And yet the scripture speaks as it relates to child rearing. Look at Deuteronomy chapter 6, please, real quick. Parents, you wonder, well, does the Bible say anything about how I ought to raise my children, how I ought to have the scripture, where that fits into their life? Yes, it does. That's very, very clear. Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 4 through 7. This is the uh, Israeli commands, the Jewish commands found in the scriptures. We'll see something else in a minute. Verse 4 of Deuteronomy 6. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. Verse 7. You shall teach them diligently to your children, and shall talk of them when you sit in your house, and when you walk by the way, and when you lie down, and when you rise. God's pattern in the Old Testament was that whatever you are doing, parents, with your children, point them to the Lord. Teach them the truth. So I get frustrated a little bit when I hear parents say things like, God hasn't called me to be a teacher. You are wrong. You are sincerely wrong because God has called you to be a teacher. You may never be a teacher on the platform at the front of a church building, but you are most certainly, mum and dad, teacher in the home for the children uh, in fact, let's take just one more look here. Ephesians chapter 6, if you would very quickly turn there. Ephesians chapter 6 and verse 4, speaking to fathers in particular, Paul says, Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Parents, you have a responsibility with your children to teach them the word. And you know what that denotes? That denotes that your own life is under the authority of the scriptures. You cannot teach someone else what you do not know. The same is true for me as a pastor. I cannot teach that which I am not already aware of. I must be personally in the word. Parents, you must personally be in the word. Husbands, you must personally be in the word. How on earth will you train your wife? How on earth will you train your children if you yourself are not under the absolute authority of the scripture. So it teaches us about child rearing. And it teaches us about temptation. I won't turn there, but Matthew chapter 4, verses 1 through 11, you know that text, the Lord Jesus there in the wilderness after his baptism. <clears throat> Devil comes along and says, why don't you turn these stones into bread? And you know the Lord, uh, you know Lord Jesus' response. It is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word 
that proceeds from the mouth of God. You find in the next portion of Scripture that the devil takes him elsewhere. I'll give you all the kingdoms of the world, he says, as if that was his to give. And the Lord Jesus says, you shall not tempt the Lord your God. It is written. It is written. It is written. Let me say, if you are wrestling in an area of temptation, if you find that there is this recurring problem you have, there is one source of hope and help, and that is, it is written. The Scripture. That is how you will overcome any temptation in your life. It will be through the Scripture. Point number two that we're going to finish with. Told you I had no idea how long this would take. But I do want to look briefly at this matter of the sufficiency of Scripture. And by sufficiency of Scripture, I simply mean that it is adequate It is powerful, it is able, it is able to achieve what it sets out. It is sufficient for your life as a Christian. You don't need anything else that relates to the spiritual realm. Let me pause a moment and say, the Bible has never claimed to be a science book, has it? It's never claimed to be a medical book. Now, when it speaks of science and when it speaks of medicine, it's always true. But it never claimed to be that. The Bible claims to be a soul book. S-O-U-L, an inner man book, um, a book that changes you from the inside out, a heart book. So anything that relates to your heart, the scripture says, I am sufficient to bring about change to your mind and to your heart. We need to understand that. Notice that the text we're looking at, 2 Timothy 3.16, it's profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction and for training in righteousness. I want to briefly just share with you what that means. How is the scripture sufficient? How is it sufficient? In what ways is it apt to meet my needs as a spiritual individual? Number one, in the realm of teaching. If you desire to know God, if you desire within your heart to know him in deep intimacy, there is but one way. The word of God. That is how you will know God. That is the teaching. That is the doctrine. That is everything that undergirds your Christianity. If you are void of doctrine, you are void of an understanding of God. You cannot make wise decisions if you have not got at least some doctrine into your life. My goal as a pastor is to teach doctrine is to undergird you with all that is necessary to make wise decisions in your life so that when things come along, you're able to look at them with the mind of Christ and say, this is what God would have me do in this situation. That only comes through the teaching, the doctrine of the word. Today, nobody likes the word doctrine. And yet it is essential and vital to the Christian life. That is doctrine. The second thing we note in our verse, it's profitable, it's sufficient for teaching, but also for reproof. Reproof. We know what that means. If you're a parent, I know what it means as a child. I was often given reproof. And that means to uh, bring about uh, an understanding of the error of your ways. And it used to be in the form of a stick about this big. And I broke many a stick on uh, my hinder parts, may I say. And uh, that's what reproof is. Did you know this book is going to break you? This book is going to reprove you. This book, like God's wooden stick, may I say, when you read it, is going to point out to you the error of your ways and bring about 
and understanding of what is correct and right. It ought to break us. God's word. In fact, Jeremiah writes, Is not my word like a fire? Is it not like uh, that which breaks the rock into pieces, a hammer? Is it not a smashing device that should destroy us? Yes, it is. And what's wonderful is that what it destroys in us, it also restores in us. It has a restorative nature to it. It convicts us of our sin as we look at it through the lens of what God would have to say in his word. It's reproof. And then correction. This is a wonderful, wonderful word as it relates to the scriptures. It's restoring to a right place. It's the Greek word that's used for putting an arm or leg into a cast. Uh, anybody here had a broken arm or broken leg of some sort and you've, you've wandered around with that, that, that plaster on? That's what this means. It is to bring about restoration, healing, restorative therapy, we might say, in the spiritual sense. It'll break us and then it will restore us. It will heal us like a balm, like a healing ointment. It will bring about restoration, setting things back in place. The final thing that it does in the realm of its sufficiency, and there's much more to this, it trains us in righteousness, Second Timothy 3.16 says. If you want to know how to live, you have the teaching of God's word, it's broken you numerous times, it's restored you, it's brought you back, but it also will train you in righteousness and discipline it will enable you to persevere, is the concept here. It will be your tutor. Teach you what is right. Teaching, reproof, correction, training in righteousness. So here's what I would like us to do as we close. I want to give you... That is a lot of information, I know. Most of it probably you already know. But here is where the rubber hits the road. This is the practicality for you individually. Authority and sufficiency of Scripture. What does that mean for me right now, today, here, in this very moment? It means this. And you don't have to take notes on this, but you do need to make a mental note. I must personally... Submit to the authority and truths of the Scriptures, and that means I must be acquainted with them. I must submit. Did you know that there is nothing in your nature naturally that wants to submit? Humanly speaking, in the flesh, we do not want to submit. We don't want to submit to the government. We don't want to submit to our husbands. We don't want to submit to uh, the church leaders. We don't want to submit. So I can tell you now that the natural response of a fleshly person is, I will not submit. But the response of the recreated individual, the Christian, will be, if God says I need to submit to that, by God's grace, I will submit to it. I will let it govern in my life. I will let it change my life. And I will become acquainted with God's word. You know what? If you don't want to be acquainted with God's word, you're either living in sin or you don't know God. Because anybody who knows God wants to be acquainted with God. If they're walking aright, you will want to be acquainted with God through his word. Number two. 
I must bring my family into submission to the word of God. It's not just me. This is also a responsibility for me as a husband, as a father, as those who are in some sort of a realm of authority God given in the institution of the family. This is absolutely essential because if you don't do that, if you don't bring your children and your family into submission of the word of God, let me tell you, they will be conformed to something and it will not be the word. It will be the world. God has delegated to you a great responsibility, husbands, fathers, mothers, to bring your family into submission to God's word. I must submit to the authority of the scripture in the church and help others do the same. The teaching and the preaching of God's word, it needs to resonate in my heart and me take that and say, I will do this because it is God's word taught. A couple of other thoughts here for us. I must recognize that everything that pertains to the spiritual life is provided for me in the Bible. You have everything. Peter tells us that everything pertaining to life and godliness is ours in Christ Jesus and his word that is right in front of us is the means of us knowing that. You have everything you need. You cannot for a moment say, I can't do this in the spiritual realm because we have the power of God here in front of us that changes us. The scripture will teach me. The scripture will strengthen me. It will convict me. It will change me. It will challenge me. It will restore me. It will discipline me. It will correct me. And just a couple of other thoughts as we close. Having been at this uh, biblical counselling course this week, I have been reminded again, and that's probably where all of this has come from, I've been reminded again that there is no issue of your heart or my heart that the Bible cannot take care of. No issue. Now, many times we're presented with an outward problem, but it has an inward focus it has an inward origin remember what the bible says that out of your heart the mouth speaks and adulteries and lies and so forth all come from our hearts all of those issues uh, that we wrestle with from day to day come from the heart and yet the bible tells us that it is the heart's ointment it is that which changes our heart and i just want you to note a couple of things here all of the issues of my heart are confronted and remedied through the scripture There may be those in our midst here who present with depression, anxiety, battles with anger and discouragement, bitterness, lust, loneliness, discontentment, pride, deceit, greed, unforgiveness and much more. I want you to know this morning that the authority and the sufficiency of Scripture deals with every one of those. They are inner man issues that the Scripture deals with. And the scripture has all power. Note this verse. For the word of God is living. It's active. It's sharper than any two-edged sword. Notice this. Piercing to the division of soul, of spirit, of joints and of marrow. And discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. That's what you have in front of you, church. This is what you take home with you today if you have one. If you don't have one, I'll give you one. This is what you have the privilege of reading and spending time in day and night. And the Bible tells us if we will do it, we will prosper in our spiritual life. Here's what we're going to do in closing for five minutes, not for long. 
I want us to reassemble into our groups and here are the questions that we're going to ask really quickly. What areas of my life specifically need to be brought under the authority of the Scripture? We're getting to some heart stuff here. We have to be a bit honest here. Where do I need to forsake my ideas and submit to God's revealed truth? How often do I consult God's Word? Am I renewing my mind every day? If not, why not? What excuse do I possibly have to not know the mind of God every single day? And then which aspect of the sufficiency of Scripture am I most in need of right now? Is it to learn about the truths of God in general? Is it showing me the error of my ways? Is it to recalibrate my mind and restore me from some specific sin? Or is it just simply to be trained in how to walk and live aright before Him? Father, as we close and spend just a few moments together in closing, discussing some of these things, I pray that we would understand the authority and sufficiency of Your Word, that we would not just see this as an intellectual exercise, uh, that we wouldn't just... uh, go home and make uh, special arrangements to do this every day because, well, that's what the preacher said, but that our heart's yearning and desire would be to live every day with a renewed mind and to live under the authority and with the sufficiency of Scripture for every area. Lord, thank you for your word, for its power, for the way in which it works within us. It's like the dynamite in our soul. It, it, it is able to blow everything to pieces and yet bring it all back together in a way that honours you. Lord, we want to worship you, strip from our hearts uh, the idols that reside there and bring us back to a place where we operate in the spirit of God, with the mind of God, for your cause in this world. In Jesus' name, amen.